This semester, if you've been with us, we are looking at the life of Abraham together, and we are, hopefully, what you have seen, what we've seen is that this ancient Near Eastern nomad who lived 4,000 years ago actually has some relevance for our lives as we live them today. And this is the fascinating reality of the Bible, is that it's not just a collection of stories, it's not fables, it's not religious, like how to be a better person, anecdotes, but there's something much more than that going on. Um, uh, There's a a story that I love about a Christian missionary named Leslie Newbegin who was English and he served in India in the middle of the 20th century. And he relates the story, this conversation that he had with uh, a Hindu um, scholar about the Bible. And this is what the Hindu scholar said to him. He said, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It's not a book of religion. Anyways, we have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need any more. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole creation and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. This is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. And so that's what we're doing as we're reading, whenever we read the Bible together, but as we're reading Abraham, about Abraham, we're seeing that this is not just stories that existed long ago and far away, but that it's actually a story that is designed that we would find ourselves in it. This is what I I loved our um, icebreaker question tonight. If you could be in a movie for a a week, what movie would you choose? I chose, what did I choose, Groundhog Day? I don't know how long you'd be in the movie, but... um, (laughs) This, is, this reveals something about us, right? That we're, we're designed, there's something about us as humans that we want to be inside of a story. We want a story to help us make sense of our lives. And that's what the Bible claims to be. And so we're going to be reading from Genesis 14 um, together tonight. And just to set the scene, so what we've seen so far, we meet Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 12. Uh, he's this man who's part of a family that has given up worship of the true God and is worshiping the moon God amongst other gods. And God calls him and sends him out. He gives him all of these promises and sends him out. And he leaves his family and his land and his household and his name and goes because God sends him. And what we saw in this is the call of God means that when your life feels like it's a dead end, it's not. And so we saw in Genesis 12 that Abraham entered the promised land and then this deep famine fell on the land. And um, he and his people and his animals were, were stricken by this famine. They didn't have anything to eat. And so he took matters into his own hands and he fled to Egypt. And there, f- fearing the political power of the Pharaoh, he let the Pharaoh take his wife, Sarah, into his harem to save his own skin. And yet, despite Abraham's wickedness and his foolishness and his fear, we saw that God was present with him, that he protected him, and that he provides for his people. And then he actually sent him out of Egypt loaded down with wealth. Um, And so this is what we saw last week in Genesis 13. We saw Abraham's response to God's kindness, that the blessing, the grace of God, produced in Abraham this beautiful fruit. In response to God's goodness to him, um, he turns back to God, he rests in what God has done for him, and then he renews his relationship with him. And then that brings us to to Genesis 14. And for the first time in the narrative, we're actually given a... um, a wider lens to view the story. It's like the narrator zooms out and shows us the ancient Near Eastern geopolitical landscape of, um, of Palestine. And so what we see, we're actually going to skip over the first um, 10 verses 
Uh, and I'm just going to summarize that for you. It's, the first 10 verses of chapter 14, is just, it's a lot of really hard to pronounce ancient Mesopotamian names. And what's going on in this is we're told that there's this group of five kings who all live in the southeastern corner of the Dead Sea. And they um, are ruled, like they're serfs, they're under the rule of these four kings that live up in Mesopotamia, about 250 miles north of them. And then we're told that they're under, under the rule of this one king in particular, his name is Chedoleomer. And they, he's under their rule for 12 years, and then in the 13th year, they rebel. They, they um, stage this rebellion, they get free of his rule, and they have a year of freedom. And then um, the four kings from the north come south to reconquer these five kings. And so they stage this massive military campaign and move south through the land, conquering every kingdom along the way. And I don't know how you've imagined the story of Abraham so far as we've gone through it. I think it's, it's easy for me to think that Abraham's just this one guy, like out in the wilderness by himself. But archaeologists have discovered that in this area, in the middle of the Bronze Age, which is where this is taking place, 4,000 years ago, they've discovered um, actually where this, takes, this story place t- takes place tonight, that they found graves for or sorry, 1.5 million people. Right? So this area is teeming with people. And we've got these northern kings that are sweeping south to reconquer their servants, their vassals. And so to imagine this well, you really need to be thinking like Game of Thrones. That's what's going on. Massive, um, large-scale warfare, minus the dragons, but just this like all-out war, alliances, who's going to win, who's going to take over who, who is the real king who has power over everyone else. And so these northern kings sweep down, they wage war on the southern kings, and one of the details that we're given in this is that on the southern tip of the Dead Sea, there's this, these asphalt pits, and that some of the men, as they're fleeing, actually fall into the asphalt pits. So we're given these like graphic um, war details. Um, and I just, just one historical note here. This uh, scholars have said that the names that are in the, these first verses are, are true to the time period, and they've checked them to say that, hey, this is actually a historical narrative. Like what we have here is a historical narrative that's 4,000 years old. So that's where we are. We've got these four kings sweeping south through Palestine, um, taking prisoners, going all the way down, pillaging Sodom and Gomorrah, taking everything, and they leave. And then that's where we're going to pick up in verse 11. If you want to read along with me there, this is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true, and he gives it to us in love. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre and the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Shedolaomer and the kings who were also with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and 
Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth, a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anor, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. So simple outline for us tonight. We're going to look at what did Abraham do, why did he do it, and how did he do it? So first, what did Abram do? Well, he risked himself at great cost to himself to save his nephew Lot. When the armies of Cheddar Laomer rolled through, among the other things that they grabbed was Lot. Now, if you remember, Lot was incredibly wealthy, right? He struck it rich coming out of Egypt as well. And he decided to move out of the promised land into Sodom because rather than trusting in God's future promise, he looked and he saw that the land around Sodom was rich and full. And rather than waiting on God, he grasped the good life without him. And now we see that one of the consequences of this decision is Lot getting conquered and kidnapped by these foreign foreign kings. And we hear this one guy escapes, right? I'm sure he's like crawling through the desert, last breath, crying out, Abraham, that's how I'm picturing it. I don't know if that's how it happened, right? Abraham tells him that Lot is taken um, and he immediately gathers his 318 of his strongest men and then they chase the bad guys down and defeat them. So we see here that Abraham took a great risk, right? He has these 318 guys. They're running after four kings who just wiped out all of these kingdoms. I think there are eight total on their way through. And they're all, all of this is in pursuit of Abraham's foolish nephew, Lot. So the question for you is, do you take risks for others? When your friends are in trouble, especially the ones who seem to always get into trouble, are you willing to risk something, anything for their sake? I want you to hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to that. So we see that Abraham takes a great risk and then that he took this risk at great cost to himself. So what was his cost? Well, they were in an agrarian society, and so that meant that the strongest men were trained to, um, to be farmers and to take care of the animals. And here we have Abraham taking these men, these 318 of them, off the job in order to go and pursue his nephew Lot. And then they chase Chedar Laomer north of Damascus, about two, which is about 275 miles. So think that's further than Winston-Salem to Charleston, It's further than D.C. to New York, further than Atlanta to Nashville, further than Dallas to Houston. He chased them there, rescued Lot, and then came back. Rescuing Lot and all of his possessions and all the people that were with him. He probably did this on foot. This would have been significant time lost for Abraham and for his men. Going on this rescue mission cost Abraham a lot. It cost him the economic output of these men for that period of time. It would have had a significant economic impact on him. Now, as college students, money isn't your greatest resource, right? It's time. 
I mean, think about this. You're far more concerned about wasting time than you are about wasting money at this stage in life. Um, I want to read you a little blog post that I read this past week. This is from about 10 years ago, and it's called On the Virtue of Wasting Time, uh, written by a professor named Carl Truman. And this is what he writes. He says, one of the amazing things about modern American culture is surely the pathological fear of wasting time. It's especially evident in the attitude towards children. Public school kids have their lives scheduled from morning till night. Homeschool parents seem to regard any second of the day from the age of two that isn't used to learn Latin poetry or the cello or conversational Swahili as as time that is wasted. It's a far cry from my childhood when school ran from nine until four and then I was free to ride my bike and walk on the common or just sit around with friends. And this continues into later life. All the technology we have and people seem to have less free time than ever. Indeed, he writes, we have surely lost the virtue that is laziness. As Kierkegaard once said, far from idleness being the root of all evil, it is rather the only true good. A truly amazing theological insight. Some may think that that might be going a bit too far, but compared to the idea that the essence of humanity is busyness, it is much to be preferred. The greatest testament to the power of wasted time in the history of the church is surely Martin Luther's table talk. So the table talk is a collection of um, sayings and anecdotes told by Martin Luther, the reformer of the 15th and 16th century, um, a collection of his saying and anecdotes that he just told around his table. Uh, And it reflects the full range of Luther as pastor, pastor, mentor, Christian, and friend. Reading the comments from advice to young preachers, he says, the sixth mark of a good preacher is knowing when to stop. I'm going to work on that one. Um, To comments on lawyers, he writes, one only studies something as dirty as law in order to make money. (laughs) To general observations on life, some of which don't bear repeating on a polite blog such as this. Um, Something I can share, Martin Luther loved potty humor. I don't know if y'all knew that, like, his writing is full of fart jokes. So if you want to go read that, you can. All right. So the article continues, um, and he says, I suspect Luther's table companions learned more about life and ministry while drinking beer and having a laugh with the master than in the university lecture hall. Numerous applications come to mind. Seminary, or in our case, college, is the people with whom you strike up friendships. Friendships, real embodied friendships that are not exclusively mediated through pixels. This is written 10 years ago. Embodied friendships are crucial to staying the course of life. Laughter in the face of adversity and hardship, not only being vital in this regard, but also, of course, an almost exclusively social phenomenon that requires company. Drinking beer with friends, if you're of age, of course, is perhaps the most underestimated of all Reformation insights and essential to ongoing reform. And wasting time with a choice friend or two on a regular basis might be the best investment of time you ever make. How does that strike you? Question to ask yourself, are you able to waste time on people? Or are you unwilling to risk wasting your time for the sake of others? Do you succumb to what he calls the pathological fear of wasting time. Abraham loved Lot and wasted one of his greatest resources on bringing him back. So why did Abraham rescue Lot? I want you to think about their relationship. 
Abraham had just given Lot the choice of land, and Lot left the promised land and went to Sodom. Lot made the wrong choice. He is reaping what he sowed. His consequences have caught up to him. It is his fault that he's in trouble. He's in the trouble he is in. And Abraham could simply point to this and say, man, what a horrible thing for him that he got swooped up by that king on his way north. You know, I, I wish he hadn't made those choices that got him in that spot. But that's not what happened here, is it? Instead, Abraham goes after Lot. Now, why does he do this? Why does Abraham go after Lot? Um, I think it's interesting in this passage that the covenant name of God, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name is only mentioned once in this passage. And it's near the end in verse 22. And up through verse 16, this passage reads like a secular battle. Like it's kings and alliance with other kings going to war against each other. And that's the point. The word king in, in this chapter is repeated 28 times. So reading this chapter, if you read verse 1 through the end, you would be led to ask the question, who is the true king? Is it the king of Sodom? Well, he's conquered by Cheddar Laomer. Is it him? Well, he's overtaken by Abraham. Is Abraham the true king? Well, he submits to the blessing of Melchizedek. Is the true king Melchizedek? Well, he submits to the Lord, to Yahweh. So underneath this ancient Near Eastern Game of Thrones and the preceding manhunt, is the story is asking this question, who is the true king? Who deserves our ultimate allegiance? And the question of allegiance is actually the question of integrity. Bear with me on this. The question of allegiance is actually the question of integrity. Integrity is being true, is, be, is holding allegiance to your ultimate authority. Integrity is holding allegiance to your ultimate authority. As Americans, right, we're taught to think that integrity is being authentic. Integrity is being true to yourself. That's because as Americans, we have elevated the self, the individual, to the place of supreme authority. We live in a culture of what's been called by sociologist Robert Bella, expressive individualism, which means that we are taught from a young age that your final authority is yourself. You do you. Above all things, you have to be true to yourself, right? This is what we hear. So integrity, as our culture defines it, is obeying this maxim, be true to yourself. But if integrity is being true to your ultimate authority, then you need to ask yourself the question, what is my ultimate authority? Is it myself? Is it something that's greater than me? Is it my family, my parents? Is it uh, my professors? Is it my tribe or my ethnicity? Is it my country? And if you're a Christian, then you have answered that question, what is my ultimate authority? By saying that God is your ultimate authority. That Jesus Christ purchased your life with his own. That he has delivered you from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom, that he has bought you back from death, that on the cross he has exchanged his life for yours, so you no longer belong to yourself, you belong to him. So then if you're a Christian, integrity is being true to the authority of Jesus Christ, your king, even when you yourself can't explain why he has asked something of you. Integrity as a Christian is obeying Jesus even when any other voice or even every other voice is telling you to do the exact opposite. Um, my friend Luke Miedema tells this great story about a friend of his um, who's a pastor who uh, was given some medication for something and one of the side effects was hallucinations. And so this friend wakes up in the middle of the night and he discovers that he's covered in fur. 
So he does what any logical person would do when you wake up and you discover that you're covered in the third. He, he goes to the bathroom and he turns on the shower and he starts to shave the fur off his, buddy, off his body. And it, his wife wakes up and calls out to him and says, honey, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm, you know, just shaving my fur. And she says, you don't have any fur. And he says, yes, I do. I have this nice full coat of fur on his body. And they go back and forth. And um, eventually he is led to this crisis of authority where he has to choose what, what, who's he going to trust. Like on the one hand, he has this, this voice of love that he has grown to trust over the years of his marriage that he knows will not, love, will not lie to him. The voice of his wife will not lie to him. Who loves him has his best interest in mind. And on the other hand, every sensory, every sense in his body is going off telling him he is covered in fur and he needs to shave it all off. So this is a crisis of authority. Well, he ends up believing his wife, gets back in bed, calls the doctor the next day, changes his medication. Um, So the reason I tell that story is that listening to a voice that you have grown to trust even when every external indication, every put of input and evidence points the other way, other way is a sign of true integrity. Think about Abraham. Integrity for Abraham was obedience, obedience to the God of the promise, the Lord who promised him land and offspring and a nation, who promised him that he would bless him and that he would be a blessing to the nation, that th- to the world, that through Abraham, God would bless the world. And at this point, Abraham has yet to have a child, right? He's got the promise, but he has nothing to show for it yet. And then when Lot is kidnapped, Abraham has a crisis of authority. Who is the true king? Is it some warlord with a difficult name for Mesopotamia? Or is it the Lord, the creator of all things? We see that Abraham is willing to take the risk to pursue Lot with only 318 men because he was trusting the Lord as his ultimate authority. So what are your authority crises? What situations do you find yourself in where you have to make a choice? Where you're forced to answer the question, who is my true king? Who will I obey? Will I obey Jesus or will I listen to the voices of a different authority? What are your crises of authority? Um, I thought of a couple. Rest. When the pressure to be busy and your God stay, say different things. Um, You need a Sabbath. You are created, we are created as humans to work for six days and to rest for one. God gives us Sabbath as a gift, a day for rest and worship. We're told in Hebrews 4 that Jesus has secured for us an eternal rest. One of the primary ways that we worship Jesus is by resting from our work because Jesus has accomplished his work. So what if, instead of resting from your work, you worked from your rest? What if you saw rest rather than as a break from your busyness? You started with rest, resting in God, and then worked from that. What if your life together on campus as students was marked by this ruthless elimination of hurry together? Like, What if instead of filling your lives with extracurricular activities um, Christian, spiritual activities, and otherwise, running from one spiritual leadership thing to the next, what if you ordered your time according to the rest that God has won for you? See, when you name Jesus as king, he reorders your time. And so when you feel the pull to measure your busyness rather than your rest, you have a crisis of authority. 
Another crisis of authority, forgiveness. And this is when your heart and your God say different things. When God says that forgiving your roommate again for the very same thing that they know drives you crazy, when God says that that is better than holding a grudge, that you are to forgive as Christ forgave you, even when you don't want to, you have a crisis of authority. How about, um, how about the party scene, hooking up? This is when your body and your God say different things. When God tells you that not hooking up with that gorgeous guy or that gorgeous girl who is willing and ready actually is the best thing for you, that not giving your body to them is the path to life and goodness when every cell in your body says, but God, it feels like the opposite. You have a crisis of authority. So when you're in a crisis of authority, you must ask yourself, is God good? Do I actually believe that Jesus is the good king that the Bible claims he is? And as you learn to surrender to your king, as you trust his good word to you, a word that you've grown to trust, a word that is filled with amazing promises that indicate that he is in fact interested in your best, as you surrender to Jesus, your life begins to be a sign to the world that you are living in the kingdom of God. Your life becomes a sign. It points others to God and his goodness. And that's what's going on with Abraham. His life is a sign to the world that the Lord is the one true king. Your personal integrity is a sign that you are on the mission of God. And it's one of the primary ways that you're called to worship King Jesus. And this didn't click for me until my last year of college, when I finally came to understand the grace of God. When I finally knew that God's acceptance of me was all of grace and had nothing to do with me earning it. That Jesus loves me not because of anything I do or I don't do, but he loves me because I'm his. And this set me free. Like this, this set me free. The good news of God's grace set me free to be on mission. To be on mission in my academics, in mission with my integrity. Friends, Jesus really is better than the world. The kingdom of King Jesus really is better than anything any false kingdom can promise. And Abraham risked himself at great cost to save Lot because his life was a sign to the world that the Lord is king. So we've answered the what and the why. So finally, how did he do it? How did Abraham have the courage and faith? How did he have the integrity to pursue Lot and rescue him from the grip of his enemy? And how can you? How can you have courage and faith to live with integrity to your true authority? And the answer is found in the last section of our passage. After Abraham defeats Chater Laomer, he returns back to the king's valley and he's met by these two kings, king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And we're shown these two kings to give us a contrast between the two. We're shown the king of Salem, Melchizedek, and he brings out bread and wine, which is um, a symbol of a, a great feast. He brings out this feast to welcome Abraham and he blesses Abraham. And then we're shown the king of Sodom who comes to Abraham, but he says nothing and he brings nothing for him. And then Abraham responds to Melchizedek and he gives him a tithe. And this is just an ancient Near Eastern way of recognizing who, who his Lord or his king was. Abraham is giving 10% out of his submission to the Lord, saying, the Lord won this battle. I didn't do it. And then we see the king of Sodom who tries to strike this deal with Abram. He's saying, hey, let's split the spoils of the war. Like, you take the stuff, I'll take the people. And what he's trying to do here is he's trying to get Abram's loyalty. In effect, he's saying, I want you to treat me like you treat the God of Melchizedek. And Abraham refuses. He refuses to take anything that isn't his. Why does he do this? Because the offer of the king of Sodom is nothing compared to what God offers him. 
Abraham's interaction with these two kings reveals the source of his courage and his integrity and his victory. And that source is God's promise. He's acting from the promise, not for the blessing. It's from the blessing. He didn't chase down Lot to earn anything from anyone. Abraham was working from his rest, the rest that God promised to him. Abraham was able to risk himself at great cost to save Lot, displaying through his integrity the identity of his king because of the magnitude of God's promises to him. And God has kept that promise to Abraham for you in Jesus Christ. So where are you in this story? The key to seeing yourself in this story isn't asking, how am I like Abraham? It's asking, how am I like Lot? The stark reality of our sin and guilt is that we are far more like Lot than we care to admit. If we're honest, we fear that the guilt and shame that follows us around is eventually going to come back and get us. If we're honest, we really are our own worst enemies. We need rescue. Our spiritual condition is far more like Lot than we care to admit. Friends, you need one like Abraham. You need one who will, at great cost to himself and great risk to himself, do battle against the forces that seek to capture and enslave you. You need one who, when he hears of your plight, will leave the comfort of his home and come to you and get you and bring you home because he loves you. And this one is Jesus himself. Jesus, who lived in perfect harmony and comfort in heaven, dwelling in love with the Father and the Spirit, he left home and entered our world in human form. Philippians 2 says that being in very nature God, he did not count equality of God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. On the cross, Jesus dealt the death blow to your ultimate enemies, sin and death. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to save us from the life that we have lived. And he rose from the dead to bring us home to God. Friends, Jesus is the better Abraham. And we have this story in the Bible because God wants you to see what kind of God he is. He isn't an exacting tyrant, He's not just another player on the global stage of conflict. He is a God who entered time and space as a human to give his life for yours as a ransom. And he's the true king over all creation. As I'm closing, I just want you to think for a moment about how many stories that you know and love that follow this basic plot line. The world's not the way it's supposed to be. There's an evil spell at work and on the move, right? It might be a wicked witch or Sauron or an alien, Scar, a monster, Voldemort. And it looks, if for a season, like the evil is going to win. Hope seems lost, but there's good at work as well. There's one who's come to conquer the evil, a hero or a king who returns and almost always through sacrificial love rescues the people. Aragon, Simba, King Arthur, Aslan, Harry Potter, Why are these stories the ones that grip us? Why are these stories the ones that we spend money to read and watch? Right? We know that they're myths. We know they're fairy tales. We know that they are not factual accounts of things. They haven't actually happened. They aren't true in that sense. But in another sense, they are among the truest things that we know. Maybe we love them because the world really is under a deep spell of evil, and we know it. 
Maybe we love these stories because we have an abiding ache for a king whose origin is from of old, from ancient days who will come and rescue. Maybe we know that the only way the spell can be broken is through sacrificial love. Maybe we love fantasy and fairy tales because written into the fabric of our world is the longing for the true story and the true king. Maybe Christianity, as C.S. Lewis suggested, isn't just a myth, but a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us your word and um, in it you tell us this amazing story. Uh, That you are one who seeks and saves the lost. That you come running after us as we are in the ditch of our own sin and misery. Lord, I pray for my friends here tonight, those who are struggling to believe this. Would you help them? Show them your goodness and grace, your love and care, your pursuit of them, um, your love that will never let them go. Lord, thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.